Well, once again, good morning. My name's Ben. We're so glad you're at Four Corners with us today. I want to congratulate you. In uh, 2014, you have perfect church attendance. Way to go. Very good, very good. That, that's a very achievable goal. That, that's awesome. Hey, um, let me tell you what we're going to do over the next few weeks. Uh, pastors Greg and Matt oriented you earlier and said that normally at the beginning of the year, we talk about things that are central to what we do here. Uh, we're going to do that. Um, I'm, I'm going to explain to you over the next few weeks kind of the DNA of this place. But we're not just talking about us corporately. Uh, at every point, when we dive into God's Word, the application levels are varied. We're going to be talking about us at large, but I'm also going to be talking to you. And I'd like for you to come over the next few weeks with your heart open, your mind uh, alert, and ready to receive what God's going to speak to you specifically. When we, when we started this church, our hope was not that we would just get together and create a movement to give away money and cough drops and that sort of thing to organizations out there and not to just create a fun and enjoyable place for our kids, not, not just to look at the Word of God and go through the form of church. It was to literally see lives changed, to have individuals who became better, growing, deeper, more Jesus-loving disciples. And so even as we talk about the core of the core of the core around here, I want you to be looking for places where God's whispering into your life and speaking into your ear about what you need to hear, all right? So let, let me tell you something that I'm trying to do this year as we uh, take a look at our first uh, major movement, all right? In 2014, I'm trying to not be harder on myself than God is on me. I, I don't want to hold myself up to a standard that God doesn't hold me to. I don't want to walk with a sense of defeat, condemnation, regret, that God doesn't look at me and see. Now, to do that, one of the things I've been doing lately is spending a lot of time looking at what the Bible has to say about a major concept, one that is infused in the life, the width, and the breadth of this place. The concept in the Bible you've heard about a hundred times. And my fear as a pastor is every time I get up and I talk about a subject that's been done from a thousand different angles, is that we turn off. We, we don't think about it. It's old. We know. We kind of know where we're going to go with that. And today, I, I want you to try to resist that. I want you to come, if you can, as best as you know how, with fresh ears and, and an open heart as I talk to you about grace, God's grace central to the story of the Bible, central to what Jesus did, central to what we're trying to do in this church, and absolutely essential in your life and mine. I mean, without grace, one of the key essential elements of who God is in his very nature is missing. <laughs> we can't have an authentic relationship with God without grace. It's very slanted, very stilted, very quickly when grace isn't active and alive in a church. When grace isn't active and alive in a marriage. When grace isn't active and alive between parents and their children. Between friends. Grace is essential. And the Bible has a whole lot to say about grace. Now there's some key passages I could take you through and we could stay in, in one 
set of verses, just, you know, one grouping of verses. We can spend, you know, this week, next week, the next week, and the next week talking about it. That's how replete our Bible is with stuff about grace. I don't want to do that today. I want to take you to three individual verses in our New Testament and show you what I think God's been speaking to me in a renewed way about grace, what he's been wanting me to see, and I think also what he's been wanting me to raise the temperature on around here just a little bit. We're at the beginning of a new year. Like our video showed us, the journey that God has us on, it, it literally is a series of steps. And you, you guys know this if you've been around here for a while. If not, you'll learn that we close every message time, every sermon, with an opportunity for people to take a step, to commit to taking a step, really. And that, that's what I want us to do today. I want us to take a major step, a bold step. It might be a small step, but it will have huge implications. That's why it's major. Towards embracing more fully this concept of grace in our lives. To be both recipients of grace and givers of grace. To live in grace. Now, there's a lot of times when I come to the Bible... And I, and I bring a message to you. Um, I'm, I'm heavily, heavily, heavily relying on the study because the concept is foreign to me, new to me, unfamiliar to some degree. I don't have very deep roots in the subject. Today, I come as an expert. Not in being a grace giver, not always even being an expert in understanding how much I have received, but I'm an expert in this sense. I have needed a lot of grace a lot. And when I open my eyes and I really think about what God's done for me, um, I see just how much I have received. So here are the three verses that are speaking to me that I just want to kind of tease out as we launch out into this new year. Over the next four weeks, this being the fifth of this message series as we lead up to uh, February, I'm going to talk with you about Five major movements. Today is grace. Here's our first verse. John chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Uh, they're going to put the words up on the screen, but I want to just get you set up for this. When, when Matthew begins his gospel and Luke begins his gospel, they begin with the Christmas story. We spent a lot of time in those two gospels over the last several weeks when we were together leading up to Christmas and our awesome Christmas Eve Eve service. Uh, it was just, man, what a joy. Thank you for bringing your friends and we didn't spend, you know, really any money on advertising, but you brought your friends and neighbors, and they got to experience what God's doing around here. So we spend a lot of time in Matthew and Luke. Well, when John opens up his gospel, he doesn't start with the traditional Christmas story. When John opens up his gospel, he starts more, I don't know what other word to use other than just more philosophical or, or theological. Matthew and Luke kind of begin historically. Here's how it begins, like we might would begin a story in the beginning. John begins from the perspective of heaven looking down on earth and tries to describe in theological terms what's happening as Jesus enters the scene. So John starts with very flowery language. In the beginning was the word. Now this word, the, the, by the way, the word word in that particular passage had a unique um, special meaning to it. It was this concept, this thought that when it comes alive when it's spoken, when the word is spoken, it brings cataclysmic change. In the beginning was the word, and the word gets spoken. 
The Word used to be with God. In fact, the Word is God, and the Word came and lived among us and began to change everything. And then John takes the rest of his gospel to unpack the implications of Jesus coming and living among us. So right here in the first part of John, chapter 16, or uh, chapter 1, verse 16 through 17, here's just one snippet of, of the impact of Jesus coming into our world. Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. Now, I'm just going to pause there. We have received grace out of the fullness that is in Christ, out of his abundant riches, out of his overflow of grace, out of the grace that is essential to his nature. He can't help but be full of grace. We have received grace in place of grace. Grace upon grace. When you unpack, you may know this, the the Bible was originally written in Greek. When you unpack this, this is grace piling upon grace. And when there's an expenditure of grace, when we leak grace, guess what God puts in its place? Grace. So out of God's abundant, out of his unending well, out of his artesian well of grace, he constantly pours upon us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. In the very next verse, he says this then, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He contrasts two ideas. That there's a law, there's a a sense of right and wrong, there's a sense of obligation. There are rules to follow. Now the rules are important, they reflect God, they indicate God's values, they set for the disciple, we'll talk about that in a moment, they set for the disciples expectations. And originally Moses dabbled in and gave us and, and was full of law giving, the character of God on display through the law. It came, the law was given through Moses, but but he contrasts the law with grace and Moses with Jesus. Moses gives the law, but Jesus comes, and when he comes, grace and truth come with him. The law is given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus. Not just given, he is the embodiment of these ideas. He is the embodiment of grace and truth. Grace and truth. And here's the first tension that anybody who wants to take grace seriously has to deal with. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. In fact, I want to tease it out for us just a little bit. Grace and truth. This is really interesting stuff. Because in this tension that exists in the grace and truth that Jesus embodies, both and, fully grace, fully truth, the only person that's been able to live this tension out in perfect harmony, when you look at what Jesus actually did in the world, when he came, the rest of the stories that John tells that he's setting us up to receive, you're going to see played out on a grand scheme the full embodiment of grace being given to everybody and a person who lives in full grace. And at the same time, the full embodiment of a person who does truth in a way that changes people's lives. Grace and truth, intention fully embodied in the person of Jesus. 
that when he came to this earth, they came with him in their full expression. And Jesus come, comes to the earth, and he didn't just come to you know, live a life, be an example. He comes to impact people, and people begin to follow him. Disciples is what we call them. It's interesting. The word Christian, we, we use it in a lot of different senses. In, in fact, it's such a watered-down term that I feel like it's almost lost its meaning completely. And, and, and that's okay. I'm not even all that upset about that because when you read the Bible, the early followers of Jesus didn't call themselves Christians. And that's why you can go anywhere in the world and find Christians saying all manner of things, mutually exclusive, completely contradictory concepts coming from people under the label of Christian. Earlier followers of Jesus would have never called themselves Christians. They were called that first in a city of Antioch, Christians, which means little Christ. They, they modeled themselves after Christ. I guess in that sense, it's a good term. But the early followers of Jesus, they called themselves disciples. Disciples. When you read the stories in the Bible about these disciples, it becomes very clear, crystal clear, against the backdrop of what's happening in our modern society under the label of Christian, the word disciple in your New Testament and what the disciples did, no ambiguity. They took seriously, embraced the teachings of Jesus. When they saw the grace-giving, truth-giving Jesus, they embraced as best as they could both and. Not all grace, not all truth. Somehow, in the embodiment of Jesus, he lives them both. And the disciples of Jesus, in like fashion try to embrace both of those. And this is an incredible tension for anybody that, like me, knows you must have grace to get by. Beyond just the theology that we firmly believe that we need grace to have a relationship with God, I need grace just to continue. I need grace with my wife. I need grace from my wife, from my kids. Anybody who wants to take seriously grace quickly comes to this juncture when reading the story of the disciples who are living with grace embodied, that grace comes with, in the person of Jesus, truth. It's not an either or. Sometimes when you read the stories of Jesus, I'm amazed at how almost harsh he seems with some people in the way he speaks truth to them. And then I can turn the page and read another story about Jesus in the Gospel of John or Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And I'm amazed at how little truth about their situation and what's really going on he's speaking as he almost seems to ooze this grace upon them to say, in one sense, what you've done doesn't even matter. For instance, the, the thief on the cross. Here's Jesus, here's two thieves. One is kind of lambasting him and criticizing him and mocking him. And the other says, at the end of his life, with no real hope that he can get off the cross and change anything, he looks at Jesus and he says, in effect, you don't need to be here. You don't deserve this. I do. When you die and you arrive in paradise, will you take me with you? And Jesus looks at this thief who probably lived his life in the mines you know, a very harsh and ugly life and deserved to be on that cross. And he never said to him, you don't deserve to be with me in paradise, which would have been the truthful thing to say. He looks at him and says, yeah, today you're going to be with me. And I read that, I go, what an amazing ability he had to just ooze grace onto people. 
And then there are these other times when he looks at the rich young man who comes to him and says, what do I need to be saved? And he gives him the harshest truth. He goes right to what's really going on in the rich young man's heart. And Jesus says to him this, here's what you need to do. You need to go sell everything and give your money to the poor. Whoa, where's the grace in that? When you read the person of Jesus, you have this almost contradictory reality of grace and truth being lived out. You can't, you can't, you can't take him seriously. You can call all things Christian if you want, but when you look at Jesus, there was this embodiment of both grace and truth. They're just who he was. And the tension has never gone away. It exists in every individual's life. It exists in all of your relationships. It exists in the life and breath of this church. The tension between grace and truth. Let me give you some examples where it shows up around here. If, if we announce, for instance, that we're going to do a message on relationships, particularly marriage, and, and if we're going to dive into the intimacy issue, into sex, it's interesting, a couple things happen. Attendance bumps up. Evidently, people are very interested in sex, right? If you look online at the number of downloads and, and just the number of views, major spike. It always interests me. Because in, invariably, when I do a message on sex and we talk about the Bible's approach to sexuality, one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage for a lifetime, and everything apart from that expression of sexuality is a sin and not what Christians or disciples are called to do. And, and listen, every time I preach about sex, that's what I'm going to say, because that's what the Bible says. Invariably, I'll get some email. It doesn't sound very nice and kind. Of, and I don't want to say, well, what did you think I was going to say? What, what did you think I was going to say? Because, you know, around here we deal with the Bible. And we talk about it in truth-filled ways. Now, the challenge is to make sure that as we're talking about the truth, about what the Bible says about human sexuality and the pain that comes when we break God's law and the difficulties that come when we break God's law, is to do that in a way that also embodies grace. So some churches to resolve this, just to be honest with you, some Christians, remember, the word Christian is an amorphous term, not used in the Bible to describe followers of Jesus. They didn't call themselves that. But some Christians, in an effort to kind of deal with this, they basically have said this. Here's how we're going to manage the tension between unhuman sexuality, grace, and truth. We're not going to talk about God's standard, and we're only going to talk about the fact that if you've messed up, if you've screwed around, if there's darkness and pain in your life here, then we accept you and we love you. You're part of us. That's all we're going to say. We're not even going to talk about this thing over here. We're not even going to talk about the standard, really. We're just going to create an environment of love and acceptance, and that's all we're going to do. And other churches, to manage this tension between grace and truth and what the Bible actually says, and nobody who's intellectually honest can really debate it, even though all kinds of pseudo-intellectuals are trying to play around with what the Bible has to say about that. Here's what they'll do with it. They'll say, other people will say, here's, here's how we're going to manage it. We're going to be so direct and so clear. We're going to talk about it in such ways that if, if, if you have not lived up fully to the standard, your experience of us dealing with this topic is going to leave you more broken 
crystal clear but more harsh. The bruises you have, we're going to bump them again like the elbow that's been bumped, and it's largely okay. You don't even think about it, but then you bump it again, and it was a small bump the second time, but man, it hurts a whole lot more. That's going to be your experience when we talk about this thing because we're very concerned for you to know the truth, do the truth, and don't break the truth. And then that one little issue, the full tension between how do you do grace and how do you do truth gets lived out in churches. I don't know your life, but in my life, the tension between grace and truth gets lived out. In our family, and this is okay, there's nothing wrong with it, it's just description and honesty, Jill is the grace giver. She's incredible at it, honestly. She embodies this thing beautifully. And who do you think is the truth person in the relationship? And here's the harder. Which one do you think the kids like more? (laughs) Yeah, of course, they like their mama more. Because dad, my personality, I rally here. Now, listen, I try to do it in a way that embraces this too. But I just, I'm more naturally here. I'm the one that says, you know, if you keep this up, you know where that's going to take you, don't you? And I'm always trying to drag them forward to the future that hopefully they can imagine it so that they change their behavior and live in light of the truth. Now, obviously, it's not an exclusive thing. Sometimes I'm a great embodiment of truth and sometimes, or of grace, and sometimes Jill can speak truth in ways that I never can in the kitchen, and they go, oh, and I think, I've said that a thousand times. Why are you listening to her? It's a ch- anybody that wants to take grace seriously in the Bible has to wrestle with how these things lived out. And the challenge is not to let go of either one. Because I've been thinking about 2014 being a year of grace in our church. As we step forward in it, we have to hold to and embrace what John described Jesus as, the embodiment of grace and truth. Somehow Jesus did it perfectly and beautifully. Even if I don't understand it and can't make sense of it all the time, and it seems contradictory to me. And while I read the Bible that way, when I read my life, I feel those same tensions. I want to tease out another verse for you, though, that maybe you've heard of. Just kind of keeping in the stream, but just turning slightly. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Not a lot of time to spend context here, but Paul writes a letter to a church after Jesus has come and gone, and he's trying to help them understand what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus, a Jesus follower, somebody who embraces the fact that Jesus is Lord and has submitted their life to him. So Paul, in trying to understand this and write it out and help the church at Rome understand it, he uses this set of words. He says in Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. Wages is what you get with sin, but you get a gift with Christ. is Paul living in that same tension. How do you talk about life with Jesus in a way that embraces what he embodied, full grace and full truth? So Paul trying to tease this out, he says, here's, here's the truth. The reason why we have to take truth seriously, because if I don't, and people don't understand it, if they don't hear it, embrace it, if disciples of Jesus don't embrace the truth and instead are careless with their lives and careless with the sin in their life, whether I like it or not, here's what's going to happen to them. 
they're going to experience the wages of sin. It's coming. Whether I tell you or not, whether I tell my kids or not about the importance of school and doing well and the discipline it takes and develop them and give them the skills for life, whether I ever explain that to them or not, if they don't take those things seriously in and of themselves, that's going to bring a certain wage in their life. My not telling them or my telling them isn't going to stop the force of their choices and the wages that are going to come to them. So Paul, here's this pastor type who's in charge of a church who's experienced grace on a level that is just amazing. Here's how much Paul experienced grace. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the chief one. You think you're bad? Let me tell you about my life and how much God has forgiven for me and how much he had to cover over me. I'm the chief of sinners. And in the understanding of the grace that was given to him, he's wrestling with the fact that sin always has a wage. And people need to know that. Disciples of Jesus can't ignore that. And on the very heels of reminding people that sin always has a wage and that ultimately always leads to death, where there's sin, something in your life is dying on the heels of declaring that with clarity, something else rises up in him. But the gift of God, there's the grace. In fact, gift in grace, in the original Greek, it's charis. Charis, the gift, the grace, they're the same word. But the grace of God, the gift of God, the charis of God, that's eternal life. Wherever grace is operating, wherever Christ and his embodiment of life and grace is there, wherever grace is operating, life is happening. That doesn't mean we forget this. But sin always has a wage. When I was growing up, I think, it, and this is not always fair because it's only my experience, but if this is that dividing line and we're trying to live in tension between grace and truth, when I was growing up, my churches that I was a part of tended to focus more on the truth side. We, 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 would, we thought we were doing this, but we often did this, and there's a lot of benefit to that. Somehow, if 2014 is going to be the year for you, for your family, for this church, that God wants it to be, we have to hold to both fully. And that's messy. That's messy. It's messy if, for instance, you decide to deal with the tension by ignoring either one because it's hard, because it's difficult, because you're going to be inconsistent, because there's no clear rule on how to do it in any one situation. But for instance, if in your own life, forget everybody else, you quit telling yourself the truth about your situation, you're headed for a mess. You don't deal honestly with your behavior, your thoughts, your words, your heart, how you act. You quit, you ignore that. You live, even though you're 35, 45, 55, you live as an adolescent who seems to have an unending ability to push away the natural consequences, the reality of their natural consequences, and emotionally it seems to not even bother them for the longest time. If you bring that adolescence into your adulthood and don't deal with the truth of your life, you're headed for a mess. And if the truth of where you are and what you've done is so loud, and so stark 
And in the dealing with it honestly, you forget that there's a God who is a grace giver, that you can be a recipient of grace not based on what you did honestly as a disciple of Jesus. You're going to live a defeated year. And the joy unspeakable that the Bible describes followers of Jesus are supposed to have, that won't be your way. It's in the person of Jesus that we see this marriage, this beautiful tension that never gets fully resolved. I read the story of the thief on the cross, and I want to go, part of me, part of, part of, part of me wants to say, somehow that's unfair. And he doesn't even get a chance to get out off the cross and go live it out. And yet here it is with just, and then I, and then I have to pause, right? Because that's me unfairly given grace. There's nothing fair about grace. That's why it's so unbelievable. That's why it's amazing. That's why people who look at the faith from the outside look at disciples of Jesus and they say your religion, that's your drug. It helps you manage. And there's some truth in what they're saying because religion in one sense does help me manage. It helps me manage the tension of the starkness of my own truthful existence. And how ugly that is. And it always leads down a path I don't really want to go. It helps me manage that because there's another reality, there's another truth that I've experienced, that I've encountered, that holds that thing in its appropriate place, the grace of Jesus Christ applied to my life. I've seen it in pockets in my marriage when I have screwed up and my wife forgives. I see it in my kids where... I've had a bad day and my volume or my tone goes further than it should. And 10 minutes later, they're hugging me and telling me they love me. It's the grace and the truth. So there was Jesus living it. There's Paul wrestling with it. Here's our church. We struggle with it. How do you do grace and create an open and welcoming and affirming and embracing environment of all people, no matter where they're coming from, and at the same time, never compromise the truth? Well, one of the ways we try to do it is you just stay focused on God's word, which means, well, I love telling you stories about my life because I want you to adore me. I don't, don't like me, please. Just adore me. Go all the way in. I love telling you. At the end of the day... If those don't point you back to the scripture and to the God of the Bible, it's a waste of time. And so sometimes when we're over here dealing with this, it creates some real uh, angst. I get it. I think that's exactly what people experienced when Jesus was doing it. And sometimes when we're all the way over here and we're parked in this camp for a while and we're dealing and in, 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 in dispensing this category, the grace, I think sometimes it creates a certain angst there as well. And, and I think it's just the way it's going to be. I think it's okay. And I think it's okay if that happens in your life as well. I think one of the ways we thrive this year as disciples of Jesus not some amorphous Christian term, but followers of Jesus as we try to walk in his shadow on this. And I don't have rules on it. I don't, I don't know. I know that if you let go of either one, you're in trouble. I know this is why Paul, in his writings, deals seriously with sin. And if there was ever an apostle of grace, it was Paul. 
He's the one in the most beautiful and poetic language in major pockets of his writing uncovers the layers of grace from the perspective of love, from the perspective of faith. In one of his letters, Ephesians, in the second, what we would call the second chapter of Ephesians, he takes 10 verses and unpacks grace. The first 10 verses. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not by yourself, so you can't boast about this. Over and over and over again, grace. But not just Jesus, not just Paul. Peter, who walked with Jesus, one of the original 12 disciples. And if there was ever a follower of Jesus that needed grace, Peter did. He knew it too. Because it was to him that Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. I'll never do that. And before the night was over, in front of a little girl, he's cursing like a fisherman, declaring he'd never even heard of this guy called Jesus. And we're given a beautiful picture of that moment when one of the gospel writers tells us that at that moment, Peter looks across the courtyard and sees Jesus being carried away. And the full weight of his failure hits him. Peter knew what it was to be a grace needer. He knew what it was to stand in light of the truth. Because this is the same Peter that at one point when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? They're calling him all of the kinds of things. But it's Peter who declares, you're the Christ. You're him. You're the one we've been waiting on. And he proclaims this truth with such clarity. Both and. (laughs) Complete failure and complete perfect devoted disciple. Embodied in the same person. So later in his life, Peter writes a few letters. And, and we have some of those words recorded for us in the Bible. And in 2 Peter chapter 3.18, this is a verse for me for the whole year. And, and, and in our church, I'm not always going to connect the dots back, but this is a major movement for us always, but this year in a renewed way. 2 Peter 3.18, here's what it says. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Let me tell you what Peter has been writing about. He's been writing about the end of time. A lot of questions about what's going to happen. Remember how how interested people are when I talk about sex? They're also interested when we talk about eternity. The the number one most viewed uh, message on our video cast is a message I did on hell several years ago. So eternity and sex. So this year, to drive up attendance, I'm doing a message series on will there be sex in heaven? Because I'm, I'm all about the numbers. <laughs> so Peter's been wrestling with, all right, so, so the end isn't yet. What do we do? What do we do since it's not yet? Since you're still breathing. And the last words of his letter, the last words we have recorded of Peter the Apostle, No matter what else is going on in life, he says this, but grow, grow, grow in grace and knowledge, grow in grace and truth, get understanding, hear Jesus' words, let it impact your life, and then be covered over with grace. Those are marching orders. That's a mission statement for disciples of Jesus. When, when Jesus left this earth and he gave us the great commission, it wasn't the great suggestion, the great commission. This is what you're to do. 
but go and make disciples, not converts only who declare that now they're a Christian, but disciples who are growing in Christ. Peter says to them, here's your marching orders. Between now and your end personally, here, between now and the end of the world, here's what you're to do. You're to grow in grace. Grace giving, grace receiving, grace living, and you're to grow in knowledge. Knowledge of what? Of our Lord and Savior. The stuff he said. The stuff he did. The stuff that was important to him. As you watch him live it out in the pages of your Bible, extract for yourself similar principles. And if you take that marching order seriously, let me tell you the wall you're going to hit. Is it grace or truth? What should I do? Do we need to have a clarifying conversation or do I just need to put my arms around her and hug her? I, I, I don't know. Do we need to just push this into the past because it's in the past and it's a fresh start or is there residual that we need to deal with? I, I don't know. But that is exactly the kind of questions that followers of Jesus should be asking. Embracing the truth and living in grace. Embracing the grace and living in truth. And I think as we wrestle with this, as we struggle with this, as we continue to, as Peter says, grow in this, what's happening is the Holy Spirit is working on our hearts. If we'll allow Him, He'll cause us to literally grow deeper roots, stronger faith. That tension is a faith-producing tension. It's a humility-producing tension. It's a wisdom-producing tension. It's a ministry-effectiveness-producing tension. And if you ever let go of either one, you're headed for trouble. We need the truth. People need to hear the truth in terms that they can understand, not so flowery that somehow it goes over their heads, but sometimes hitting them and me square in the face. And people need grace, don't we? Where the truth is harsh in our lives and the reality of where we are and we know we're headed for death, there's decay, and then the sweet fragrance of God's grace washes over our life. The church is at its best when we boldly proclaim truth and we wildly and extravagantly deal in grace. And I'd love to tell you I know how to do that fully. I don't. I don't even know how to lead our church in it fully. But I know sometimes we hold people accountable. And especially as leadership goes up, as visibility on the stage goes up, as movement in a classroom goes up, as leadership increases... Truth and standards have to increase, you know, at, at, to the same degree, proportionately. And at the same time, when people walk in our doors, the first thing they should experience is warmth and embracing. No matter where they're coming from, what their preconceived ideas are, what baggage they're carrying. And between those two experiences, it's just a mess. And I think it's okay. 
And I think your 2014 will be radically different if you on an individual level embrace both grace and truth, that you're a grace giver and you're a grace receiver, because that's just the nature of God. And that you're a truth giver on occasion and you're a truth receiver on occasion, because that's just the nature of life with Christ. I think it'll work in your marriage. I think that will work in your parenting. I think that will work in your leadership. I think that will work on your job, in your friendships. I think that will work well in your own heart. And I think you'll be becoming more of a disciple as you do it. So let's do what our video said at the beginning of our message, and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. Would you do this? Would you grab out that Connect card that pastors Matt and Greg had you fill out a little bit earlier? If you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, I want to introduce you to the guy that was the perfect embodiment of grace and truth. And he knows everything about you accurately. And he embraces you fully at the same time. And he says you can have a relationship with him not based on anything you've done, but because he has paid the price for you. So next step A around here every time is this. I'm accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior for the very first time. And if having a relationship with somebody that has the ability to tell you the truth and at the same time not run away from you as he deals with the truth, in fact, loves you more, if that sounds good to you, let me invite you to do this. Check next step A. Put, the off- put it in the offering bucket when it comes by at the end of our service. Make sure your email's legible on there and we'll communicate with you. An email about what it means to be in a relationship with the guy who perfectly embodies grace and perfectly embodies truth. In a moment, I'm gonna pray and I invite you to use my words or, or your own To look up to God and say, God, I am a sinner. I've blown it. That's just the truth about me. And yet I want your grace. Would you cover my sin? And would you lead my life? If you want to do that, check the box. Put it in the offering bucket when it comes by and we'll communicate with you via email this week. Or how about next step B? I want to get baptized. Second service, there's somebody getting baptized on the very first Sunday of a new year. There's like a lot of firsts in that and it's just going to be a great time. If you want to get baptized or have your questions answered, check the box. We'll communicate with you via email. And then we'll get you uh, get you set up. It's a very simple process around here. We believe baptism is the beginning marker of the relationship. It doesn't mean you've achieved or arrived at anything. It just celebrates that you're doing life with Jesus as a disciple. Now, how about next step C? I wonder if just as a way of trying to live this out, you'd memorize this passage. It's central to the story of the gospel. Romans 6, 23, it says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a way of trying in your own self to fix the two pillars of truth and grace. Hide God's word in your heart, all right? Romans 6, 23. Or or, or how about praying this prayer every day this week? God, would you help me to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? Listen, if you've been following Jesus for 50 years, God, would you help me grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? All right? Or how about next step E. I just wanted to drill on this one just for a moment. God, would you help me be a grace giver in 2014? I'm very aware of my need to be a receiver. And grace works that way. But I'm also called to be a grace giver. Anybody else in the room feeling that tension and that pull? God, would you help me be a grace giver? Why don't you check the box? We'll remind you about it. And this week, I'll join with you in prayer, and you pray for me as I try to live out that next step, E. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, who brought in his person grace and truth and lived it perfectly. God, as a a disciple, 
as a leader, as a church, as a husband, as a father, I want to live in his shadow. To walk in embracing fully grace and embracing fully truth. And I confess I don't always know how to do that. So I turn to you, the giver of grace. I turn to you, the one who shines the light of truth. And I ask you, Father, would you help me? Would you help us? Would you help our church to be people who live in grace and love and live in the truth? God, I lift up those that are committing their lives to you right now. They're saying, God, forgive me. I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you would help us to be grace givers and truth livers like never before. I pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen. Amen.